Good morning, everyone. It's uh, lovely to have you with us this morning. Um, just to, as a reminder, we, we've got a few extras of these uh, leaflets. So as much as we would love to see each and every one of you there, we would also love to see others. And so if there's anyone particularly in mind or you just want to take a couple of extra copies, I have them ready to, to you know, give out at I know, Tesco's. <laughs> um, just uh, please, please do feel free to take those and, uh, and invite those who are nearest and dearest to you um, to join in with, with what's going on this, this autumn. Um, as you might have noticed, uh, the very front of the flyer explains that we're uh, going to be looking at the book of Philippians throughout the autumn. Uh, it's going to take us actually right the way into the new year, uh, we hope. Um, and, and I suppose in the, in the providence of God, so much of what we've been thinking about, so much certainly of what I've heard this week about Her Majesty the Queen in terms of her faith, we see, we see that displayed through the book of Philippians, that kind of faith that has been explained. We see a living, active, humble faith. And th- those are themes that come through very strongly through God's word in the book of Philippians. And so... Um, in some ways, we're going we're gonna to press ahead with this series. Uh, there, was, there was many thoughts this week as to how we conduct this service, what would be most helpful. Um, as I heard some, one commentator say this week, the queen would just want us to keep calm and carry on. Um, we are not guided by the queen's uh, impressions here. We believe actually that God's word speaks timelessly, forever, at all times. Uh, and he has laid this on our heart. And we're excited to be launching into this letter of the New Testament this morning. And... As we consider this great book of the New Testament, um, I, I trust that we'll come to a fuller understanding, as you can see from the slide, of, of how we can develop deep roots of a joyful faith. Um, that is one possible summary of the book of Philippians. It's a very difficult book to summarize because it is so rich. There is so much to learn. That's why, even though it's only four chapters, only 114 verses, it's going to take us into the new year to spend our time savoring this great news that God has given us in this, this wonderful little letter. But deep roots of a joyful faith, that's my prayer, that, that as we all spend time collectively in Philippians together, that God will develop and nurture deep roots of a joyful faith in each and every one of us and collectively as a body here. And as we, as we embark on this journey in the Philippians this morning, I wonder what your, your knowledge and experience with this letter is. Maybe even as I've been talking, you've been uh, trying to find it. You know that it's in there somewhere. It's sort of after Romans, but before Hebrews and somewhere in the middle. Maybe you've actually never heard anything about Philippians. Uh, and in that case, I'm excited for you. Brilliant. I pray that God captivates your heart as we unpack his word together. Um, perhaps you know the name of the book, you've, you've heard some things about it before, you've maybe even read through it before, but as you, as you think about it now, there's nothing directly coming to mind. Um, perhaps you can recall snippets of Philippians. Philippians is a wonderful book. Um, it's a kind of treasure trove of memory verses, if I can put it like that. Let me, let me just share some of these statements that you may know come from Philippians, or once you hear them, you may recognize. Here are just nine examples of some of the great truths, short snippet, memorable truths that we hear through this book. He who began a good work in you will carry it on until the day of Christ Jesus. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or then in chapter two, we have that poem or song about the humility of Christ, where we see that Christ Jesus being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. 
And later in chapter 3, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Again in chapter 3, I press on, Paul says, towards the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Again in chapter 4, I have learned the secret of being content in any, in any, in any way and in every situation. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And the final one, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You can see, that's just a selection of some of the great truths that we are going to see as we work our way through. And we can maybe understand how Philippians is often quoted as a favorite of many followers of Jesus because of the great, uh, the great truth and joyous truth we see in it. But one thing I want to be, want to be pretty clear on, that Philippians is, is a portion of God's word that is so much more than catchy sayings. It's so much more, if I could say, than memory verses. This is God's word. This is true truth. Uh, these are divinely inspired, timeless treasures for us to explore and soak in. They're, they're not just something to slap on a coffee cup. Although helpful as that may be to bring God's word into your everyday life, wonderful. But they're not pithy sayings. These are God's true words to us. And so we will see that this is a rich and indeed a nourishing book for our hearts as we seek to follow Jesus. And this morning, I, I very simply just want to open the letter with us and consider the first two verses. Uh, the first two verses of the letter where we see a, the greeting from the original author to the original audience, yet even in these specific details, let's remember exactly what we've just said. This is God's timeless word to us, to all people. It is his eternal word which he has preserved for us. And so what does this greeting, these two verses, have to teach us about what God was saying to his people then and continues to say to us as his people today? And so if you have a copy of God's word, let's read the first two verses of Philippians together. Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word and there happens to be one of the red hardback ones around, then please take that uh, as a gift from us to you. We'd love you to have a copy of God's Word with you. Um, so let's read Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just read those verses again. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is God's word to us, and we pray his blessing upon it as we embark on it this morning. And perhaps if you were reading through the book of Philippians, you'd be quick, we would all be quick to skip over this introduction, but this even in these early words, uh, the author here who we told is Paul and Timothy, the author lays out some important things that will be developed throughout the letter. And so God clearly has something to share with us here. He has preserved that greeting in his word. And this morning, actually, even out of those two verses, we're really only going to think about verse one. Because in verse one, what we're going to see are the, the authors, the recipients, and the place. But actually, what we'd like to see is, oh, sorry, Tim, uh, Patrick, can you take me back to the very first slide? Um, what we actually see are the authors who describe themselves as servants or slaves 
the recipients who are described as God's holy people or saints, depending on your, your translation. And then the place, Philippi, which gives us an idea of the situation that's being written into. So we see the authors, the recipients, and the place, but actually what we see there are teaching about what it means to be a servant or a slave, what it means to be a saint, and what it means in the situation that we find ourselves in to follow Jesus. And so let's begin by thinking about the authors. Paul and Timothy, verse 1, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Or as I said, your translation may read, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Why, why does... Why does Paul use this title of himself and Timothy here, I wonder? When we compare it to the rest of the New Testament letters, it is a little bit different and unusual. We see this term servant used at the start of Romans and again at the start of Titus. But more often than not, we see something, something more authoritative that Paul opens his letters with, something like Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So I wonder why he uses this lowly title of a servant here. Well, one reason, possible reason, is as we'll come to see in the weeks ahead, Paul held this church in Philippi with deep affection. He, he dearly loved this group of people. I mean, if you flick down to, to verse 7 and 8 of chapter 1, we see it. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, Paul said. And then he goes on in verse 8 to say, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul deeply loved this church. And so, Perhaps he didn't want and didn't feel the need to exert any kind of authority in that apostolic sense. And he was coming alongside them as a fellow servant or slave of Christ. That, that, that might be the case. That is a very plausible option. Another option, though, and I think actually points us to a deeper reason. See, when we read through the whole letter, and I would encourage you to do that at some stage today after lunch, maybe before you sit down to catch up on some news or before you sit down to, to make the Sunday dinner this evening, um, which will be very confusing for some of us. Um, read through Philippians, four chapters, and read it through in one sitting. And as we do that, you get a sense for some of the themes and the real teaching that God has given. And one of the things that he makes abundantly clear throughout this letter is the importance of the humble service that every Christian should embody. We've already mentioned that we see it really clearly, most clearly, in the second chapter where Paul has that poem or song about Christ and how Christ indeed embodies that humble service, that humility which paved the way for his ultimate glorification. And so from the outset, as Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, Paul could be laying that tone and setting that tone of how each and every Christian should view themselves. We are servants. We are slaves. And notice, Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus. They are slaves of Christ Jesus. One commentator has helpfully unpacked the significance of what that means, maybe in our language and culture where we don't use that terminology very much anymore. But the word here that, that a commentator I'm, I'm quoting now says, the word Paul uses is bond servant. It's doulos in the original Greek, which actually mean, means slave. He goes on to explain, a slave actually belonged to his master like a piece of property. He did not have a life of his own. Further, a slave did not own anything. He was entirely dependent upon his master to meet all his needs. Neither could he travel anywhere without his master's consent. His entire life existed to please his owner. Now, as Paul says that he is a slave of Christ, I think that description is entirely fitting. Paul didn't have a life of his own. As we read through Acts and all of his letters, we see that Paul was governed by and he was fully surrendered to Christ. 
And that's because in a, in a similar way to a master purchasing a slave, Paul knew that Christ had bought his life. He had purchased his life. Christ had paid the price for Paul's life, for Timothy's life, for my life, for your life, because Christ has paid the price for sin. And so in doing so, in paying the price for sin, Christ has then bought for us the freedom that comes and the freedom that only comes by being his slave. Now, that might sound like an oxymoron, but there is nothing, according to Scripture, there is nothing more freeing than being a slave to Jesus Christ. Free from sin, free from guilt, free from the eternal punishment that comes from that sin, and therefore a slave, as we read in Romans, to righteousness instead. We're no longer slaves to sin. Look at how Paul explains this in Romans 6. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slave to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. And so when Paul calls himself and Timothy slaves of Christ, this is what he's talking about. And it is not an accidental or incidental term you could actually say that in this term, slaves of Christ, we see the crux of the gospel of Jesus. You see what it means to be bought by him, to have him as our savior and our Lord. This is the good news. And throughout the letter of Philippians and indeed elsewhere, as we see through scripture, we see that Paul is indeed a joyful, willing, obedient slave. And he explains that all of Christ's followers should also be that. And we'll not skip too far past Timothy's mention here. Paul's apprentice, if you want to call him. Paul actually calls Timothy my true son in the faith. This is another deep relationship that Paul had. He deeply loved Timothy as others. And we'll actually hear more about Timothy when we get into the second half of chapter 2. Um, but we see that Timothy is a vital partner in Paul's ministry here. Timothy is the one who was sent to churches to encourage them in many settings. He was the one who helped Paul to grow the faith and witness of churches around Asia Minor. And so Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And so that's what we see about the authors and what it means to be a slave or a servant of Christ. Then we go on to see the recipients of this letter to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. To all God's holy people. You may, if you're reading in the ESV, that will read to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And so what are we to learn from this? What does it mean to be God's holy people, to be God's saints? I think we hear the term saints and, and assume that we're speaking about a very select group of extraordinary people. Perhaps our minds are taken some, to some heroes of the faith from the past where we think, yes, the term saint applies to them. Maybe even someone who we know and love who no longer is with us and we know that, that they rightly deserve that term, saint. But when the Bible uses the term saint or what's maybe more translated holy one, that's not exactly what it's talking about. It's not just a select group of super holy people. No, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a saint. See, Paul addresses the letter here to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. To all the people. This is not just some VIP group of the super spiritual. He also then references the overseers and deacons. So it's not just talking about the church leaders at Philippi. No, they're mentioned separately, included in this all 
God's holy people. And throughout the letter, we see time and time again, Paul using this reference to the whole church family. He speaks of all of you or you all. And I imagine if we were in the deep south of America, we'd talk about y'all. That's the way that Paul talks about this church family here. All God's holy people. Paul is talking to every believer in Jesus Christ who meets at Philippi. And in doing so, he calls them saints, God's holy people. But you and I hopefully are normal people. And we know that that title doesn't sit well with us sometimes. How how is it that normal people, every believer in Jesus Christ, well, that includes me, that includes many of you. How is it that we can be called holy and for that to be true? Well, Well, the text gives us the answer to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus. See, it is only in Christ Jesus that we can be considered holy. Paul unpacks this a little bit more in chapter 3, in verses 8 and 9. And there we read, What is more, this is still Paul writing in the middle of an argument, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. See, the righteousness that enables us to be counted holy is through faith in Christ. It is only faith in Christ. See, that right standing that we can have, that's what righteousness is, being right, being made right before God, can only come through faith in Christ Jesus. That's how someone's made holy. Not, not because of someone's really, really good and super ability to be extra special, no. It's not because of someone's ability or someone's worthiness to deserve that title, no. It is through faith in Christ, because we know in Romans 4.25, he was delivered, Christ was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That's the only way we can be justified. It's the only way that our sin can be fully dealt with through the sacrifice of Jesus. And he took it, he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. That justification is what grants us righteousness. It is how we can be considered holy. And how does it happen? Well, we haven't had anything to do there in chapter 4, verse 25 of Romans. It's not he was delivered over to death for the sins of those who were worthy, for the sins of those who tried hard, for the sins of those who deserved it. No, we were t- he was delivered over to death for our sins. And we were raised to, and he was raised to life for our justification. And how do we know that? When we put our trust in Christ, when we are found in him, we are, we are granted righteousness through our faith in him. See, Christian hope and, and the Christian gospel is that it is only through faith in what Christ has already achieved that any of us can be made right with God. To have our sins removed, to be forgiven of them, and therefore to be able to stand in the presence of the holy God and not be consumed by his holiness. And we can do that because Christ has died so that he paid the price. He took the penalty of our sin. He rose from the dead, showing his victory over it. 
and his welcome of us, of those who put our trust in what he has done. His resurrection proves the eternity that awaits us. See, as we read regularly from 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin, that is Jesus, God's perfect divine son. He had no sin. But God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that how in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is how we can then rightly receive the term holy one. Not not because we deserve it, but because Christ has taken the penalty for our sin and then by through faith and repentance in what he has done, turning from that sin and turning to the life of forgiveness that he offers, he removes the sin from us. And so we stand clothed in his righteousness. This is great news. And that phrase again, in him is key, isn't it? It is only through the faith in the finished and final work of Christ that we can know him as our Lord and Savior. We can know forgiveness. We can know grace. We can know peace with God. We can know reconciliation with him. And we can be made holy. Now, for those of you who have followed Jesus for any length of time, or for those of you who know a Christian, you will know that that our lives are not always lived in a manner worthy of that. We are acutely aware that our sinful flesh continues to raise its head and seeks to retake the control that we took from it and gave to Christ. In other words, we we know that we still sin at times. So, So how are we to think about that? As God's holy ones, how can we still sin? Well, once again... As we continue through Philippians, we'll see the reality of the process of growing in holiness for the Christian. Chapter 1, verse 6 says this well, being confident of this, that he who began a work in you will carry it on until completion, until the day of Christ Jesus. God will carry on the work he begins. The life of the disciple is a process of growth into Christ-likeness. We see it again in chapter 3, further on in verse 13 and 14. One thing I do, Paul said, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenward. You see, the, the, the life of a disciple is a life of growth. It's what the Bible calls sanctification, growing more like Jesus. And so, so yes, we may stumble and fall as we journey through our lives of faith. But the God who saved us and declares us holy is the God who equips us to live the life that is worthy of the gospel and continues to offer forgiveness when we stumble. He's the God who continues to lead us and guide us along that path of righteousness. He's the God who instills that that desire for holiness in our lives in the first place and that distaste for sin. He's the God who continues to work in us. And so... We are made holy by the finished work of Christ and we continue to be made holy by the work of his spirit in our hearts, transforming us more into the likeness of his son. But why is all this talk of holiness important? Why, what difference does it make for God's people to be holy? Well, well, holy means being set apart. And we see that through the letter to the Philippians, that those who trust in Jesus should live a life that is different from the world around because our allegiance is to Christ and his teaching and his ways. 
And so through Philippians, we have very practical outworking of what it means to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That means our our attitudes, our behaviors, our priorities, they're not set by the world in which we live or our own desires. No, they're set by him. And so as we live in a world which may be very different from the Roman culture that the Philippians lived in nearly 2,000 years ago, but we still live in a world with different values to the world of Christ or to the values of Christ. And therefore, we still need to take this mantle seriously to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy, to be God's holy ones, so that the world around us will hear and see the gospel of Jesus being lived out in front of them. So you can see from this very brief introduction, we've already seen Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus in Philippi, servants writing to saints, and they're writing in the situation of Philippi. And so let's briefly finish by thinking about the place Philippi. This is, this is more than just a, a geographical detail, although that is helpful. Um, it helps us to understand the situation about those who were receiving this letter initially. And not just from the point of Philippi, as we hear from Acts 16, Philippi was a Roman colony, uh, and therefore would have enjoyed some extra privileges of living in the Roman Empire. They wouldn't have paid tax, for example, and all that. So that's interesting and helpful to know. But as we look back, knowing that this place, or knowing that this situation is based in Philippi, we then know the story of how the gospel came to Philippi. As we said, it's in, we can read it in Acts 16. We're not going to uncover that this morning in all its depth. But we see Paul and in this stage Silas go to Philippi. And they go and they, they first bring the gospel to this city. And it started with Lydia. as She believed the gospel and was baptized with her whole household. And then it, it appears from the narrative in Acts 16, we read it and think that things have gone wrong because Paul and Silas get arrested. But of course, in the sovereign will of God, nothing is accidental. And so while they're in prison, they're singing and they're praying out loud. All the other prisoners and jailers can hear. And then there's this miraculous earthquake. The the bars are all released, but the prisoners don't go anywhere. And the jailer then turns to Paul and Silas and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so the jailer is then led to Christ with his whole household as well. And we see the gospel coming to Philippi. Paul and Silas then get released from prison. And the last thing we're told about their time is telling. And in Acts 16, verse 40, we read this. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Paul and Silas met with these brothers and sisters and encouraged them. They sought to build them up in their faith. And as we read through the letter, which then accompanied or followed that encounter year, a few years later, we then see Paul's desire was still to encourage them because God's desire is still to encourage and build up the faith of his people. And so this letter is about encouragement. It's about deepening the roots of believers into Christ. And from that then flows a joyous, active, living faith. So that's the situation that this letter was written into. And goodness, we pray that that would be the case again among us. That as God speaks to us through his word, we would be deepened in our love and affection for him. And that would lead to a joyous, living, active faith demonstrated to one another and the world around us. And one of the ways that we would love to encourage that growth, that spiritual nurture, is through one another. See, 
investing time in the lives of one another here as brothers and sisters, it's one of, one of the hallmarks of being a follower of Jesus. See, when, when we respond to God's offer of forgiveness, of course that is an individual choice that we make. But in doing so, our faith is not individualistic. We are then welcomed into his family, his church. And so part of what it means, as we see, what we'll see through Philippians, we see countless times throughout the New Testament, is that we are to be encouragements to one another. Not just in our daily walks or in the clothes that we wear. Or it's not just about making ourselves feel better about each other. No, it's we encourage one another in our faith. You see, it is our faith that unites us. And so the church, God's body, is about much more than, than small talk at a social club. It's, it's, it's much more than being casual acquaintances with folks that we share some hobbies with. It may be that and wonderful, but it is a deeper unity that we share in Christ. And therefore, what a joy it is to come alongside our brothers and sisters and spur one another on to love and good deeds. And, and so one of the ways... Just one of the many ways that we would love for this to take place and to create an environment for that kind of one anothering to happen, if I can put it like that, is to invest in those relationships by joining in a life group, which we start this month. Now, this is not some kind of sales pitch for life groups. This is just a, an environment that we hope may be helpful as you seek to develop your faith with God and encourage your brothers and sisters around you. And so it's a great place to start to, yes, get to know one another. Yes, spend time together. All of those things are wonderful. But the main purpose for everything that's on this leaflet is not just to fill your calendar with busy things, but so that we may encourage one another in Christ Jesus. And therefore, we are, we are nurturing, and Christ is nurturing in us a living, active, joyous faith. But as we think about life groups, let me just really quickly, and now it does sound like a sales pitch, um, think about uh, what they are and why we do them. And, and as we begin life groups, if, if you've been around church for a while, we did run life groups pre-pandemic. Um, essentially, we're hitting restart and, and, and starting from scratch, if you like. And so um, let me just lay some foundations as to why we, we want to encourage these groups. Well, what are they? Firstly, they're small groups of our church family who meet on alternate weeks to study God's word, to pray for one another, and to care for one another in any way that we can. Uh, this, this term, we're going to be studying Daniel together, and so we'd love for you to join in. When do they meet? Well, you can choose to meet with a group either on a Sunday evening or a Monday evening, uh, probably from about 8 till 10, but each group may change that. Where do they meet? Well, hopefully some of these groups might meet in some of your front rooms. <laughs> um, so there will be one group that meets here on a Sunday evening in church, for those who would prefer that. Um, exactly where these groups meet and how many groups there will be will depend on how many people sign up at lunch today. Um, uh, but we would love for some folk to offer up their homes either on a regular basis or as a one-off to say, yes, uh, a life group can meet with us. That would be wonderful. What if you are, have been part of a group previously? Well, please sign up again. As I say, we're essentially heading restart um, on all of this. And so you may well be in a group that you haven't been with, a group of people who you haven't been with before. What a great way to invest in some new relationships. Now, don't, don't not talk to the people who you used to be in a group with. Uh, those, those WhatsApp groups aren't just going to be you know, shut down and, and uh, you're never going to speak to those people again. No, of course, it's about developing new relationships with one another as we've gone um, through the last few years together. And so what do you do now? Well, as I said, we'll be inviting people to sign up to a life group and you can do that over lunch uh, today after the service. Just sign up that you would like to be part of a group. 
if you are able to, to be a host for a group, just tick the box and that's wonderful. Once we then get all those back and see how the groups may form geographically and, and all of that, we will then decide um, how the groups will be made up and where the groups will meet. But the first life group meeting will hopefully be a fortnight from today and tomorrow, Sunday the 25th, Monday the 26th of September. But as I said, the, the, the point of these groups, and indeed every opportunity that you see on that flyer, is, is to encourage one another in our faith, that we, that we deepen our roots in Christ. And, and that will then lead, as we get to know him and fall more deeply in love with him, that will lead to a joyous outworking of our faith in him, and therefore a bold and enticing witness for him. As you go into your everyday, as we exist here as a church community in our community, that bold and enticing witness will flow from this joyous faith as we nurture, as Christ nurtures our love for him and the spirit works in our hearts. And so from this letter to the Philippians, may God show us more and more what it means to be his servant, what it means to be his slave, for him to be our master. We can do that by serving one another. That will flow out in serving one another as well. So may we understand more what it means to be his servant or his slave. May we also have a better understanding of our position as saints, as God's holy people, and therefore live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus. And may we know that whatever situation God places us in, he's with us to equip us to live for him, to empower us to speak for him to those who don't know him yet. And so, Heavenly Father, would you come and would you nurture and nourish deep roots of a joyful faith in each and every one of us, we pray. Help us, we pray. Amen.